some of you are probably wondering what the heck, uh, what, where's the energy that this circuit concept of mine comes from? What energy is it running off of, actually? It would be the correct question to ask. Not where, <laughs> but what. <clears throat> and then the where becomes self-evident when we look at the what. There's an article on Wikipedia called uh, The Electromagnetic Spectrum, and it states... I'm paraphrasing to the best of my memory. The higher frequencies of the electromagnetic spectrum possess greater potential energy than do the lower frequencies. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> the objective here is to harness or harvest the various frequencies out there in nature. <clears throat> Sorry, I just ate. <laughs> And I go through this. Um, to harvest those various frequencies and then transduce, I guess is the word, or transform, I, I'm really not sure. Convert, <laughs> plain English. Convert the higher frequencies to lower frequencies, thus augmenting the power in evidence, the kinetic power that those higher frequencies possess that we don't get to utilize at those frequencies um, unless we lower them, forcing their energy to magnify to make up the difference, the amplitude. And <clears throat> then we harvest that kinetic energy of those lowered frequencies through the various capacitances and inductances of the circuit. In other words, the circuit is, is uh, like an echo chamber, which is not unlike that of a laser chamber. A laser chamber, you shine light into it, or you irradiate light in, from the inside, actually, and it bounces back and forth between two mirrors that oppose each other, and then the other walls absorb the energy, and then only coherent energy is left remaining. That's kind of like what we're, we're trying to do here. We want the energy to bounce around inside the system and get refined in the course of doing so. Refined in the sense that we want to lower, lower the frequencies so that we get more amplitude out of them. And they'll be more practical for use in things like an electric motor for a car. I mean, how much frequency do you need to run a light bulb? You know, you don't need a million a megahertz. Um, 80 cycles was uh, one of uh, Tesla's choices for his special generator. Um, and we use 60 in America and 50 cycles per second in Europe. So it behooves us to lower the frequency to get more amplitude out of the, pow the, the power of the kinetic energy contained within that frequency. <clears throat> but in a sense, we're not harnessing energy per se from the environment. Because the background energy of the environment is extremely low. Just enough to power a crystal radio set from 100 years ago, which is not a whole lot. But a crystal radio set is kind of like a flashlight circuit. It's dumb. It doesn't do anything much to modify the energy. It does do something so that we can hear the broadcast from the local radio station. But it doesn't do much to amplify, although the use of diodes, in a sense, maybe it amplifies a little bit. That's nice. But here we're using switches, two transistors that regulate the, um, the bouncing 
that goes on in each subsystem. So we got the copper subsystem and then we got the iron subsystem. And each handles respectively the electrostatic force versus the electromagnetic because we want to, I've learned a long time ago, it's good to segregate um, the electrostatic force from the electromagnetic and treat them separately because they are separate forces. And Eric Dollard says, you know, the, the forces that compose electricity are more than one. And if we construct our circuit to specialize certain subsections to um, accommodate the unique needs that each force of electricity, component force of electricity possesses, then we can manipulate the energy that is contained the net energy that we're going to get out of the entire circuit. But we have to segregate in order to specialize. And that's the only way to manipulate it. You can't deal with electricity and manipulate that. It's impossible. Because it's not a singularity. It's a composition of various forces that Eric Dollard has highlighted. Time, magnetism, and the dielectric. So... I approach it using the vernacular of electrical uh, or and not <laughs> of conventional. Um, for, uh, uh, so I don't necessarily will call it magnetism sometimes, um, and I won't necessarily call it the dielectric. So in this instance, I've been calling it the electrostatic, but I still call it the magnetic because it's obvious it's iron, so it's going to be magnetic. But copper is very reactive. If you uh, translate the word reactants into Russian, sometimes, not all the time, you will get the Google-translated uh, word, which, when you translate it back into English, is no longer reactants, because they don't have necessarily a word. Sometimes it, it will work, so sometimes the, the word chosen, the Russian word, will bring, you back, will bring you back to reactants when you translate it back into English, but sometimes it won't. They'll cho choose the word active. <clears throat> And the first time I attempted to translate into Russian, when I uh, stumbled upon this little find, I didn't know there were other versions of Russian words available that could be utilized. Um, but it really struck me interesting because William Lyne, in his books uh, Pentagon Aliens, says his meeting with Dort Jr., whose father Dort Sr. helped Tesla and the Nazis... Uh, incorporate his special generator into their some of their electro U-boats, he spoke of the three properties of the three materials, um, which are really the three magnetic uh, qualities. Paramagnetism, he called the reflective for aluminum. Magnetic for iron, um, which would, would be ferromagnetic, let's say, because there are other variations, ferrimagnetic, which I don't entirely understand. And then he said... Um, the active was the copper. Now, maybe Dort is a Slavic surname. I don't know. Maybe they, they had Russian extraction, and so that's the way they um, spoke about reactants. But in terms of my experience, when I deal with um, the Berkeley Spice family of simulators, they assume that all your coils are going to be made out of copper and that nothing wound out of anything else, and they are highly reactive. And LT Spice is one example. Microcap is another among the family of Berkeley Spice spin-offs, simulators. 
But Falstad has a totally different approach. Paul Falstad, his uh, uh, simulator seems to exhibit the properties of iron along with some other properties that make it an ideal transformer, not a practical one. Although, <laughs> it can be built. I truly believe it can be built, but we nobody's figured that out yet. Uh, so, <laughs> they continue to call it ideal because it can transfer DC, and I believe DC can be transferred if you don't lose it in transit because that's why it f transformers fail to pass it. And the modern-day AC transformers... Uh, are designed to purposely not try very hard not to transfer DC because they lose it immediately because the core is not suitable for a PMH experiment. You try to do a perpetual motion holder experiment with a modern-day AC transformer off of Amazon, forget it. It's not going to happen because it's made out of a compositional matrix of iron powder in a bed of epoxy barely holding it together. It may not even be epoxy. It may just be compressed because those things are so friable, it's very easy to break them. Those E-shaped that has the bar, the, the, the rectangular bar that goes against it to make a double loop, those things are so friable, it's unbelievable. And it will not hold, retain. It has no remnants. So you, you at least want a core that has remnants, a solid iron core like rebar, but on the other hand, it's not enough. You still need something more. And I believe, I believe, I speculate, I speculate that turning a, a, a core that's suitable for a PMH experiment into a, D, a core suitable for a, the, to pass DC, I think you have to charge it and keep it charged. And probably a DC charge, DC-oriented charge, even though the voltage may still alternate, the current has to go in one direction, possibly. Maybe not, maybe the voltage also has to be uh, a singular uh, or a fixed polarity, polarization as well as the current, possibly. So that the, the, the core can retain that DC charge. So maybe, a, what do you call it, an electrolytic capacitor might be necessary um, along with a diode to protect the electrolytic capacitor so that the frequencies, let's say you're using an elevated uh, plate covered with a dielectric like a Tesla's um, patent to bring down uh, atmospheric frequencies and connect it to the core of your transformer. So maybe you need a diode in combination with an electrolytic capacitor. Um, in any case, let's see, where was I? <laughs> oh, and another aside, um, the two plates that extend out from the central aluminum wire are intended to um, invoke that idea of patents, of uh, Tesla's patent that is still in the public domain, that is an elevated plate covered with a dielectric that leads down to a capacitance that whose other side is grounded to the earth and that's the arrangement I think the core needs to be grounded to the earth on one side of the core um, the capacitance of the core shall we say see now that's another question does the core become one side one plate of a capacitor with a dielectric in between separating it from either the, the earth on one side or maybe it's the other way around maybe the, the aerial plate the elevated plate on the, on the um, one side. So one way or the other, the dielectric is on the opposite side. So maybe you have to have two of these cord transformers with 
And each of those two plates are the two cores of those two transformers with a capacitive relationship between them, a dielectric between them. I don't know, but something to create a storage of charge um, and then a diode to help control the situation so that the polarization stays on one side or actually a full bridge diode. That's right. It would have to be a full bridge rectification of four diodes, probably on the aerial side, feeding this dual cord transformer um, a DC current so that the voltage can pile up on one side, that uh, you know, one polarity on, on, on the top side, on the top core, and the opposite polarity on the bottom core, the dielectric in between, and the bottom core is linked to ground, um, earth ground. I don't know, maybe natural, maybe uh, uh, what do you call it, common ground, but I would <laughs> prefer initially uh, earth ground. So, actually, in the course of talking about it, it's good I did this aside. Um, I'm working out the details of how the thing should be arranged to give the results that I'm looking for bec- to to fulfill my presumption that the core has to be a DC charge placed in it, literally. So. Now we so this is why we need a PMH suitable core because we want eddy currents because how else are we going to store a charge an electrostatic charge in the dielectric between those two cores it has to we have to be able to have eddy currents in the plate in the so to speak the core the core the plateish core or the coreish plate maybe is a better way to put it on each side of this capacitance that we're creating so we have to create capacitance and use the core as the means whereby we transfer that charge into a suitable dielectric material. Suitable, I don't know, glass. Glass is always my preference for yoga purposes, if it's a bionic circuit, a psionic circuit, but maybe something else would be more suitable for power gain. Um, In any case, now that aside, set aside. This is the kind of thinking, though, that comes out of that era. I'm trying to get into the mind of the per- people who invented stuff a hundred years ago because I truly believe Paul Falstaff's simulator can be translated into real world builds. We just have to figure out how to translate an ideal transformer into something that's buildable. So now we have two practical transformers, those that do not pass DC and those that do. And there are so many variations of over-unity circuits I've done in Paul Falstead's simulator. It's it's more than I, I know, care, or, or care to count that are over-unity. The, the first one was uh, re, uh, predicated upon Eric Dollard's analog computer in LMD, longitudinal magnetodielectric modality, and no shorting between the, the modules. I had uh, three modules daisy-chained, and so they were electrically isolated from each other but magnetically coupled through the transformers that they shared in common and it worked just fine so long as I got the capacitances and the inductances up to a a, a minimum 10 farads on all the capacitors 300 henrys on all of the uh, single coils per coil on the pair of coils of each transformer and then it, uh, I could give it an instant of sine wave power of any amplitude, cut it off, and that thing would grow like crazy. But if I kept it connected to the power source, it would drain the power source ridiculously to an extent greater than what amount of energy it was exhibited within the rest of the circuit. 
which is normally how things work when you do things the wrong way. <laughs> when you're trying to build up reactive power, you don't keep it connected to the source. And it would slow down. The presence of the voltage <clears throat> would act as a regulation to slow down the buildup of reactive power, but it would build up anyway. And it swinged like a seesaw because it was sine waves. It was beautiful sine waves, which is very uh, unusual in all of my circuits in which I discard that initial input if it's a sine wave, let's say. Um, and I don't get a sine wave output. I get anything but a sine wave output. Usually get spikes um, of opposing amperage and voltage polarity. But this one, it's not. It's your normal um, behavior of conventional reactants. You know, no more than 90, uh, excuse me, no more than um, 45 degree displacement uh, in the cycle of an AC cycle between amperage and voltage. Anyway, <clears throat> but it builds, and there's no way to stop it. I have tried, and anything you try will simply make it explode. If you do anything to it, it will explode instantaneously into infinite gain. So you don't... You better know what you're doing, because I don't know how to... See, most of my circuits are like that. They just keep building until the thing fries itself. And there was a guy on the internet I read back in 2008 who had a circuit just like that. It never self-regulated. He could time it on his stopwatch to the second when it would end up frying itself and no longer operate. You know, sizzle, the insulation would melt off his coils and they'd short out and his capacitors, you know, everything would just fry. And then the thing would cook itself to death, basically. So I don't know. And he didn't know either because... It's really tricky trying to regulate something that will blow up in your face if you try to fix it. It's really, We're dealing with something here that most people don't understand, and most of conventional wisdom is sets out as their goal to suppress this rather than harness it because it's difficult. It's not easy. Uh, just witness what Jim Murray and Paul Babcock managed to put together in the 2014 conference and, and present. They're a bank of capacitances bouncing energy back and forth through a resistive load, namely two, uh, white, uh, two uh, white light bulbs incandescent whose total uh, load was 50 watts, and they were drawing one watt of power from the wall outlet. I mean, it's tricky. It's not easy. And they were managing it and keeping it regulated. That's superb. Anyway, so the topic here was, um, what was it again? Oh, why should you believe anything I've said? Why should the circuit work? Because I, it, it is segregated. The electrostatic force is in the copper side that we want to be reactive to build up electrostatic force. And we want it to go over to the other side and translate as the magnetic, but filtered and transformed or transduced or converted... It's higher frequencies that, are, that have been acquired from the atmospheric accumulation or acquisition or harvesting, if you prefer, down to the lower frequencies to augment their amplitude so that we can make use of it in a practical way and also have more power than what's available usually in the environment. At its various frequencies, the power level is uniform. So it's one microvolt or two or three, I think no more than five microvolts throughout the atmosphere at ground level uh, surrounding our Earth, yet all these different frequencies, and if they were, if, if all the frequencies were 
equalized to the same low frequency of, let's say, 60 cycles per second, the power gain coming from the lowering of the higher frequencies would be large, much larger than uh, from the lesser frequencies. And, of course, nothing from 60 cycles because you don't change it. Now, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe I don't understand what I'm talking about. But that's the theory. And on top of which, we have a circuit that's designed in such a way that it is going to self-amplify anyway. So amplification through lowering of frequencies is simply not for the purpose of gaining amplitudes. That's a sidebar. It's really to get rid of the higher frequencies, like a laser container gets rid of incoherent light that's not in alignment with uh, all of the different waves in there. We're trying to get rid of the higher frequencies because we don't want them. They're going to get in the way and mess up whatever appliance we apply them to. <clears throat> Just the gain of power may not be much, or it may be a lot. I don't know. I don't care. main thing is to get rid of the higher frequencies. And I see the iron as a kind of filter, although it's not really. It's a converter due to its hysteresis to slow things down. And we want that. <clears throat> what I see happening, though, is that the capacitor, the Leyden jar that's in between the two copper tubes, each one of which has a copper sphere on one end of that tube, and then the um, the um, <clears throat> the transistor on the other side, and the capacitor is in between in parallel. So we have a a um, a loop. So we have a loop on the iron coil because it's indented in its center. So we create a curl to each iron lead that goes into the iron transformer, excuse me, transistor on the iron side of the circuit. It's not a single wire. It's a loop. It's a crimp. Uh, we do a U-turn. We do a bend in the wire to be able to insert it into the uh, transistor. And since there are two of them, they have to be on in in the middle point, subdividing the coil into two subcoils. And how we wind those two subcoils, I have no idea whether they're counterwound with respect to each other or if they're wound in para, in, in in you know the same direction together with respect to each other. I don't know. Um, and whether it's bare iron wire, then then it doesn't matter how you wind it, right? I guess, or maybe not. Maybe it does still matter. But it looks to me like he used bare iron wire. <clears throat> so they're probably wound in the same direction. But it's two halves that we have to put back together again as one winding, regardless of uh, the direction of the two windings. It's still one coil, let's put it that way. It's not one winding, it's one composition, one compositional coil of two windings put together. Um... <clears throat> so so we have a loop on that side, and then we have a loop on the copper side because we have the capacitor somewhere between the spheres and the opposite end of the pair of copper tubes. At the end of those copper tubes, we have the transistor. So each tube becomes a lead going into um, the copper transistor. Meanwhile, the gate of these two transistors shares a common wire of aluminum linking the two gates of the two transistors so that they gate at the same time. This is crucial. So this is the laser's part of this. 
So we've got the energy, the electrostatic force bouncing around in on the electrostatic side. We've got the magnetic force bounce, uh, you know, circulating on the um, magnetic side, and then we have them brought together because we want electricity out of this. So we want them in phase, in sync with each other to create a semblance of real power, uh, what waveform God knows what it'll be, um, because we're probably going to have surges on the electrostatic side, on the copper side, and we're going to probably have, um, well, I don't know. See, I can't say. No, I can't speculate. I have no basis to speculate what the waveform is going to be, so I'm not going to. Anyway, I hope this explains the circuit better so you get an idea of what's going on. So this, where, so to answer the initial question, what is the source of power for this thing? It's frequency. It's not power per se. It's potential energy of frequency that is the source of power because the ambient power in the environment is next to nothing. And the power we get out of slowing down the frequencies probably also will be next to nothing. But on the electrostatic side, it's going to build up. And the electrostatic force, because it's working in tandem with the magnetic side, which is also building up. So they're going to be working together to build up. The only thing that they can translate to each other um, well, now wait a second. I overlooked one thing that I, I keep overlooking it. It's my blind spot. I'm sorry. I was given this information in episodes, in sessions, various sessions. The first one was the history of the transistor, the nature of it, the liquid version in borax baking soda or the pressurized helium. Then I was given the circuit, and I didn't like the two aluminum plates that extend out in opposite directions from the aluminum wire that joins the two gates of the two transistors. So I reduced it to one, and then I thought, well, what the hell do you need one for? That doesn't make any sense. And then I threw it out altogether. So the third session, so literally somebody is feeding me this stuff because it's a dialogue. It's not inspiration. This is a dialogue I'm having with God knows who, and it's literally I'm being corrected when I make a mistake. So the third session brought back the two plates that extend out from the central wire in the guise similar to the two plates that extend out away from the two rods. You know, one end of the two rods is the spark gap of the Hertz spark transmitter, but the opposite end are two plates. I believe they're round in Hertz's case. They could be square or rectangular, but they're spread away from each other as far as possible. So now the atmosphere, if there is an ionic uh, uh, route occurring between those two plates, it's like minimal at best. Yet we're trying to encourage ion ionic formation of ionic channels, plural, between the spheres because they're so close together. We don't want arcing. And this ionic channel, I should say something about that. Let's see if I finish the other thought. Um... I can't remember what the other thought was. <laughs> um, so we're making use of copper to exemplify or highlight our, uh, the reactive quality, uh, the reactance aspect of electricity because we want the energy to build. But because of these two plates, coming, the aluminum plates that may or may not be covered with a dielectric, you know, in, in view of Tesla's you know, patent of an elevated plate, to collect atmospheric energy, whatever, 
solar rays, whatever you want to call it, uh, he had that covered with a dielectric, and so it quite possibly these plates have to be covered with a dielectric as well. But they extend out from the aluminum wire in opposite directions as far apart as possible from each other. These plates are going to be interacting with the fields on either side of the circuit, the magnetic field of the iron coil and the electrostatic field of the two copper tubings, especially if all of this is inside that barrel-shaped coil of iron coil that we see in the photograph of the Amon brothers. All we see exposed outside that coil are a portion of the two copper tubings and the, in the, entire, the entirety of each copper sphere of the pair of spheres. Everything else I'm speculating is interior to that iron coil. And that's where the magnetism is going to be intensified. So you can imagine that these two aluminum plates extending out from the aluminum gating wire is going to be interacting with both the electrostatic field and the, and the magnetic of the circuit. And integrating it in such a way as to create four-phase power. That was the rationale I was given on the third session as to why it has to be two plates. You know, don't diminish it to one and then don't, and throw it out altogether. They have to be there to create four-phase power. Okay? I don't know how else to explain it because I don't even understand three-phase, let alone four. You know, when Eric says how to deal with four in a coil by counterwinding the coils, I still don't get it. I don't, un you, know, I'm a, you know, I'm a dummy too, you know, on some things. Uh, let's see. So what was the other tangential thought that I picked up and then dropped and then I now have to pick it up again? Um, darn it. Do I have to re-listen to this and t attach another file? Um, yeah, I may have to because I can't remember what it was that I... something I need to cover. Uh, well, in any case, I'll get to the fourth session. Um, was <clears throat> that an inductive load, an inductive appliance, may need to be counterwound and may need to have diodes placed on it to, uh, in, uh, to exemplify enforcing the unidirection of current within each coil to make sure they are opposed to each other and that there's no digression whatsoever. Now, this is in deference to what excuse me, in deference to what Sierra Lamang said in an interview. He, or, no, it was his meeting with the, the home, uh, what do you call it, the guy who comes to, the contractor who comes to modify your home. I think it was a wallpaper guy. When he looked at the mains and he said, oh, it was disconnected, why is this disconnected from the power grid? And then he showed him, he threw an iron coil onto the table, he threw iron rebar onto the coil, and then he connected the two terminals of that iron coil to a buzzer, a door buzzer, let's say. And it literally arced with elevated voltage, it had too much voltage powering that little buzzer, but it, it rang with a good ferocity. So it had current, it had sufficient power to operate, but then it's just a little door buzzer. But it had an excess of voltage. <clears throat> so this is in deference to the idea that maybe his, the motor coils in his EV were iron coils or were they iron coils mixed with copper, as in Nathan Stubblefield's earth battery. And then these other ideas of being counterwound and then putting a diode on each coil is something in addition there too. And whether or not the core the, of the rotors, well, no, rotor cores usually uh, do have an iron core. Yeah, that's right, of uh, AC single-phase motors, yes. 
They have an iron core, and they have a, the squirrel cage is entirely out of copper. So you see this. So we already have Nathan Stubblefield's Earth battery in the rotor of single phase AC motors. We've been using it all along, sort of, in in its own way. Quite interesting. Um, a variation, let's say, if you want to leave it at that. A variation. Um, but the concept never died. The, the generic archetype never died. It just kept getting reused. So that might be how the motor coils are wound uh, with a lot of iron <laughs> in the coils and the rotors, blah, 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 you know, all of that to make sure that we make use of both copper and iron to uh, whatever degree possible to maximize or even make possible um, efficiency of any sort. Um, so, did I cover everything? So the idea behind this was, why should you believe me, right? Um, well, it's because somebody's feeding me this shit. And if I make a mistake, they go and correct it and give me the reason why. Now, there were two reasons for the extended plates, why there were two or something. And I can't remember the other one. I only remember the one that's four phase because it's the one thing about electricity that still bugs me. I don't understand phases. Why they can be and uh, why it's necessary for them to be. Um, oh, I know their phase uh, shifted, blah, 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 but that doesn't tell me why that's necessary for rotary motion. See, that's the part I don't get because of Tesla's vision of, uh, you know, the sun, you're, you're running, chasing after the sun that's constantly setting or it's constantly rising. Um, I guess it's the magnetic field. That's the part I keep forgetting. It's the magnetic field. Yeah, right, because the magnetic field will lag behind the part that moves. Let's say it's the rotor. And uh, if it lags too much, you get cogging occur. That's right. Between the magnetic, uh, well, the cogging of the rotor, of the, of the electric motor. So I guess I do understand it. Um, but I still don't understand uh, how to use uh, single phase windings, uh, you know, just modify them with counter winding to, to accommodate four phase power. I still don't get that part. Okay, so I do understand. I, it was just, you know, it's been a while since I looked up to try to understand three-phase power. Okay. I don't understand why versus that other, the, uh, the two different wiring schemes of a trans, an AC transformer, the, uh, the WYE and the other one, the delta, the delta versus the Y. I don't understand that. <laughs> but then I never tried to study it. I never focused on it. See, that's my own fault, really. If I focus on things, I usually figure them out and learn. But I didn't... If I don't take the trouble, I don't. Okay, it's my own juggling my priorities. Uh, it's, it's a nice way to put it. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know if I did a recording just now, a podcast that could, could convince you, because I suspect, and I won't say, I won't name names, <laughs> that I'm not being believed in, that uh, my circuit concept idea is, is unbelievable, <laughs> or I'm not believable, or whatever, both. And I'm trying my best to try to reach out to you because that's my intuition is that I'm not succeeding. Uh, I haven't looked online since yesterday to see if there's been any responses to any of the postings I've put up. But be that as it may, the people I want to reach, I don't think I'm, I've reached them. And so that's the purpose of this recording is to help give you some background. 
because somebody wants me to build it, which I assume to be the case, but I have been told inside through intuition many times, no, I'm never going to build anything. Other people will build them for me. And I won't say who, <laughs> but um, that's why it's appropriate for me to share before I build, and that's probably contributing to the lack of believability, okay? Because I didn't take the trouble to build it. Well, I, it's not my dharma to build anything. I've built psionic circuits that ma help make rain. I've built bionic circuits that give me samadhi for, what was it, two and a half or three and a half hours? That's unprecedented. Have, but it was forced on me by the daily practice of a bionic circuit, a variation of uh, Ernest Eamon's bio, uh, Leon, Leon Ernest bio, uh, Eamon's bio circuit with a modification in as much as I put in three daisy chain modules of Eric Dollard's analog computer in LMD mode. And I had to do it a certain way so as not to destroy my nervous system. Yeah, Peter Lindemann said, don't monkey with that stuff. You might hurt yourself. But I monkeyed anyway. And yeah, I did. But I got over it quickly enough because I realized my mistake and then continued. See, it's okay if you hurt yourself. So long as you figure out your mistake with these psionic circuits or applications of Eamon circuit or whatever. So long as you figure out the mistake and correct it right away. Because you put the energy flows, the subtle energies of the body, the prana, back into place where they belong and heal them and emphasize them, amplify them, whatever, because of your use of that circuit. So you cannot back away in fear. That's the last thing to do. And I will leave you with that kind of thought because there is no use in today's world to worry about whether or not a hitman will come out and take you out or the men in black will uh, shove you up against the wall like uh, the two big Samoans did to John Bedini in his lab uh, here in L.A., in the valley, in the San Fernando Valley, and so he moved to Idaho. Um, you're going to continue to buy oil, right? Gas, yeah. <laughs> I think it was in L.A. I don't think it was in Idaho. Anyway, we can't afford to allow ourselves to be prone to fear of any sort of, of that kind of thing intimidation or the two guys who had their throats slit and their uh, Model T uh, pushed into a ditch on the side of the road when they discovered the secret behind the Model T the flywheel and the inside of the flywheel casing invented by John Worley Keeley on behalf for the benefit of Henry Ford to give him an edge in case somebody wanted to do a hostile takeover which GMC uh, attempted to do and backed away and used a different technique. They could just come out with a different model every year, and that put Henry Ford out of business. But Henry Ford was going to send a letter to his thousand happy farmer customers telling them what they can do with their cow magnets, putting them in those slots on the interior walls of the casing of the flywheel and the flywheel itself on its surface on both sides, and make it possible to cut the engine when it reaches a certain RPM, minimum RPM, and just run on the RP on the flywheel alone, the force of the flywheel. So, and the main problem I thought was not me personally that you might take offense about me that I'm not believable, or some other reason about me personally. But I thought it was because well, where's the energy coming from? Um. So it's not so much coming from the atmosphere like Sierra Lamont claimed. It's true the frequencies do, but it's really 
a question of amplification of reactive power by it bouncing around inside this circuit. It, at a certain frequency, it will build up, um, and I'm hoping that the iron winding will keep it, uh, put a cap on its buildup so that it doesn't explode and prevent it from uh, frying its, or the circuit frying itself, basically. Because the, the copper side will, I can assure you, I've done simulations already to that effect, which is possible in the Berkeley Spice family of simulators in which I used microcap to do that. Um, and that's all they could do was blow up the circuit. But um, I'm hoping that the <laughs> hysteresis of the iron winding um, and its remnants will help prevent that um, out-of-control explosion and um, keep things on a nice um, minimal deal. Okay, I'm having some interaction with a fellow laundromat person here. <laughs> so, I hope that helps you make me more believable. I don't know, you know. It's up to you to decide ultimately whether it's worth your building or not. Um, if nobody uh, builds it before I get a chance, I'll have somebody else do it for me on my behalf because I'm not skilled in building anything. I'm only skilled in theorizing and simulating and, and postulating in my brain. Um, but I know who I'll get, probably, and uh, it's good that it be somebody who will specialize in building, developing the skills for building, and while I just stay with the uh, formation, the initial, you know, thought process of of planning uh, out what the circuit uh, will be like, because I'm better suited for that. That's where my specialty has been for the past seven years, so I might as well stay there. Okay, enough said. I'm sorry, I stand corrected. It's the rotor of an AC motor that lags behind the magnet, the rotating magnetic field of an AC motor. Um, I, I guess the version I said was really not for an AC motor, but an AC generator. So, in an AC generator, the magnetic field lags behind the rotor, while in an AC motor, it's the other way around. The um, rotor lags behind the magnetic field in terms of their synchronicity of rotation. <laughs>